Welcome to the Raised with Jesus podcast, 10 minutes every day where the life of Jesus meets yours. You've got your daily Bible reading today from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6. As fellow workers, we also urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, At a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. Look, now is the favorable time. See, now is the day of salvation. We are giving no one a reason to stumble in any way so that our ministry will not be blamed. Rather, in every way, we show ourselves to be God's ministers, in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in difficulties, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights, in time of hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness on the right and on the left." through glory and dishonor, through bad report and good report, treated as deceivers, yet being honest, treated as unknown, and yet being well-known, as dying, and yet look, we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as grieving, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything." We have spoken to you openly, Corinthians. Our heart is standing wide open. We have plenty of room for you, but you do not have room for us in your affections. I am speaking to you as to my children. In exchange, open your hearts wide, too. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? And what agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer share in common with an unbeliever? And what mutual agreement does God's temple have with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will live and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of our God. As we continue to consider the contrasts of Christian ministry that we see portrayed for us here in 2 Corinthians, the beginning of chapter 6 concludes with that final contrast that we had just talked about, the contrast of this temporary jar of clay in which we live, the temporary tent in which we live, and the enduring treasure that God promises in heaven. And that section kind of concludes here at the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where the the fact of the reconciliation of the world, that is the fact that Jesus died for the sins of all people and for his sake all people have been considered forgiven, that fact now means that we don't take God's grace for granted. That, as he talked about at the close of chapter 5, that we make God's appeal, that God makes his appeal through us. And now, and now Paul encourages us, well, don't take God's grace for granted now. Don't say to yourself, well, I'll take care of it tomorrow. And don't use that grace of God, that patience of God as an excuse to walk away from God. That was basically, if you remember, that was basically the lesson from Hosea, all 14 chapters of Hosea, reminding us to not take God's grace for granted today. And so after we concluded that contrast of the Christian ministry between the temporary and the permanent, now we get to this discussion of pain and joy, which is the rest of chapter 6 and as we get into chapter 7. And kind of the thinking behind it, um, 
you got to think yourself in just a little bit, the flow of thought thus far, that some in Corinth, who likely termed themselves apostles or teachers of some sort, and we kind of get that from what Paul had said earlier about letters of recommendation. Like, do I need letters of recommendation so that you would respect me, so that you would listen to me? He says, you are our letter, written on our hearts, written on your hearts. So these false apostles, these false teachers, had begun to cast suspicion on Paul's sincerity, because look at him. Can he even be trusted? He's changing his plans again. Are you sure this is the kind of pastor that you want? So in this letter thus far, Paul has been reminding the Corinthians of some important facts. First of all, that God was the one who entrusted him with this great and wonderful office that is the ministry of the gospel, the duty of sharing abroad the um, the scent of the gospel. <laughs> as that image of the Roman triumph parade um, marches through our minds, so to speak. And secondly, that Paul has administered this gospel consciously, meaning that he has been deeply concerned that he delivered the glorious message of God, both unabridged and unaltered. And then thirdly, that all of his sufferings were, there, were for their benefit and to God's glory. And surely, surely those three things that God has given him, the ministry of the gospel, that he has administered this faithfully, and that that the sufferings he underwent were to the glory of God, surely that meant their doubts and suspicions would melt away. But what if now they began to feel so ashamed of themselves for doubting Paul and his words that they would forget the joy which he had brought to them, namely, that they would forget the comfort for their conscience? For that reason, Paul kind of concludes this, you know, the first half of the book where he's, um, he's taking care of problems, taking care of issues. He's cleaning up both his own reputation there and he's getting everybody back to square one, back to a solid foundation for spiritual work together. And this is, you know, this section, this last section on pain and joy that goes through the rest of chapter six and all of chapter seven is Paul laying the foundation as he directs their attention to the final great contrast involved in Christian ministry, the difference between unbounded happiness and joy, and that that unbounded happiness and joy comes in spite of pain and sorrow. And he highlights this, especially in verses 3 through 10, talking about the the different circumstances in which he and they have been working. Um, on the one hand, verse 3, we give no one a reason to stumble in any way so that our ministry will not be blamed. That is to say that we don't cause anything. We try not to cause problems and we, we try not to, we try to conduct ourselves in a way that is proper and upright and honest and honorable. And Paul says, rather, in every way, verse 4, we show ourselves to be God's ministers. And there are a couple of different collections of of ways that they show themselves to be God's ministers and circumstances. First of all, in ways that are difficult, um, in great endurance, trouble, hardship, difficulties, beatings, imprisonment, rise and riots, hard work, sleepless nights. Wow. So they put up with all of that for the sake of the gospel. And then on the positive side, their own actions and attitudes, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and the Holy Spirit, sincere love. 
beaten with weapons of righteousness on the right and on the left. That is to say that they they speak out with the word of God and they defend others and they defend the church of God with that same word of God. And then the reactions, verses 8 through 10, through glory and dishonor, through bad report and good report, treated as deceivers, yet being honest, treated as unknown and yet being well-known, as dying and yet look, we live. And what he's really saying here is that they can't control the reactions of others. All they can do is be faithful in their use of the gospel and be faithful in conducting themselves in an upright and proper and honorable fashion. And Paul says, we've been doing that. And so the logical result, the natural result of that is verse 11, that our heart is standing wide open. We have plenty of room for you and you do not have room for us in your affections. Oh my goodness. After all of that, all the way here through through chapter 6, verse 12, it's almost like, you know, verses 12 and 13 are the turning point. Paul says, here's the bottom line. We love you so much. We care about you. And yet you have discarded us. And in discarding us, you have discarded the word of God. So please return. Verse 13, I am speaking to you as to my children. In exchange, open your hearts wide too. And now, in order for the Corinthians to have space for Paul in their hearts, so to speak, he has to do a little bit of cleaning in their hearts, where he he says, basically, you know, we have this fellowship together, and we want to treasure this together. We have this Christian love and affection toward one another, but in your own hearts, in your own hearts, someone, something else is there. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, or a little bit more literally, do not become mismatched yoke fellows. They would have to throw out some of the things that that others have brought in there. He says, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What does a believer share in common with an unbeliever or Christ with Belial? All of those things Paul highlighting for them that you cannot, you can only love one. You can only have love for one, and that one must be for Christ. And if Paul is preaching Christ faithfully and clearly, and then he's obviously highlighted that these other teachers are not, and they are trying to get in between and trying to pull the Corinthians away from from the Lord. And in so doing, if they just have to, you know, besmirch Paul and and tear down Paul and destroy his reputation, then so be it. Because the bottom line is that it's not about Paul. The bottom line is that it is about Jesus. This section from 2 Corinthians 6 was mentioned in the Formula of Concord when the formulators of the Formula of Concord, this would be right around 1577, I think, the formulators were talking about what are, what is the extent of our Christian freedom. Do we have Christian freedom at all times and in every way regarding adiaphora, that is, regarding the things which God has neither commanded nor forbidden, or are there certain times where something that is normally part of Christian freedom is no longer free for us? And that is what, that was their conclusion in Article 10. And I'll also put this into the show notes as well as a link to Article 10 of the Formula of Concord. If you've never heard of that before, um, it's actually quite approachable. When we have the Formula of Concord, then there's the, what they call the epitome or the epitome, as I've heard some say, some call it. And there's also the solid declaration. The epitome is the shorter version, and it was actually intended for congregational use, for like um, congregational Bible study after the worship service. So anyway, it's written in an approachable 
approachable way. Check out the show notes for a link as well as for the full paragraph that, um, that I'll be referring to right now. And we're, this is where they said, we believe, teach, and confess that during a time of persecution, when a plain and steadfast confession is required of us, we should not yield to the enemies in such matters of adiaphora. For the apostles has written in Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He also writes in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? And for in, such qu- for in such a case, it is no longer a question about adiaphora, but it concerns the truth of the gospel, preserving Christian liberty, and sanctioning open idolatry. It also concerns the prevention of offense to the weak in faith. In such a case, we have nothing to concede. We should plainly confess and endure what God sends because of that confession, and whatever he allows the enemies of his word to inflict on us. That was a lot of words, and that might not be the simplest to listen to and parse out. So what's he actually saying here? What are they actually saying here? That adiaphora, things neither commanded nor forbidden by God. Um, Some examples might be, you know, smoking, gambling, um, music choice, um, even the way that, that we baptize babies. The Bible never says how we should baptize. It just says apply water. And so we would have freedom to, to sprinkle. We would have freedom to, to dunk under the water. We would have freedom in all sorts of ways in how we apply that water. But they are saying here, and I think that baptism is a good analogy, they are saying here that you don't have the freedom when it comes to a matter of confession. That even though in a vacuum you are absolutely free to apply water in whatever way you see fit. When it comes to a confession of the truth, if some would demand one way or another, then you have to adjust your freedom and adjust your use of that freedom in order to testify to the truth. So, for example, in baptism, there are some church bodies that say you have to be dunked completely under the water for it to be a valid baptism. And to that, the Lutherans have very consistently for the last, you know, nearly 500 years (laughs) said, we're just going to baptize by sprinkling because it is an equally valid form of baptism. And we don't want to associate ourselves and give the impression that one must be totally dunked underneath the water in order for it to be a valid baptism because the power in baptism is not in the method of applying water. It is in the word used in connection with that water. And the other questions that I mentioned that are, you know, questions of Christian freedom that often come up, um, such as smoking or gambling, um, the use of alcohol, (laughs) music choice in a church, or in your own personal life, you could see where a lot of times those are the topics that get restrained. Well, a Christian shouldn't smoke. A Christian can't smoke. A Christian can't gamble. A Christian should not use alcohol. And there are times where out of out of respect and love for one another, we would refrain from using those things for um, out, of, out of concern for those who are weak in the faith or who have a particular difficulty or temptation that we don't have the freedom to lead a fellow Christian to sin or encourage them to sin against their conscience. But then also, if some would say, well, Christians, um, you know, this would be like 60 years ago, Christians don't dance. Christians, um, you need to have all, always have the women with long hair and long skirts and Christians um, can never play cards. Christians can never smoke because that's not a Christian thing to do. 
well, then we want to act in such a way that testifies to the truth, that we confess the truth with our words, and we follow that confession up by correcting their error with our actions. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, if somebody says, well, Christians don't smoke, that you should go and light up, heavens. Um, but you can. <laughs> You'd have the freedom to. And at the same time, we have, it's, it's exactly what we've talked about in a couple of different areas, that confession of, of talk that is followed up by a confession of walk. And why does that matter? Because we need to have a clear testimony to those who are outside of us. We need to have a clear expression of love to those who are in fellowship with us. And we need to have it clearly in our own hearts that Jesus alone rules and Jesus alone has declared what is free and what is not free. And that we do not want to set up any other idol or any other idea that would take his place. And when we add rules and detract from what the word of God says, then really we push Jesus off of his throne and, and we have somebody else in his place in our hearts. That's what Paul is concerned about, and I think that's kind of the take-home for us today, because there are a, an ever-increasing multitude, an innumerable number that nearly no one can count now, I suppose, um, an incredible multitude of reasons why Christians would be able to see division and why Christians would be able to stake their position on, on, on one idea or another idea. There are so many reasons for division, and what Paul says here is it really boils down to one. Who really rules in your heart? If it is Jesus, then we need to, yes, act wisely and in Christian love and in deference, and we also need to act in such a way that testifies to the freedom that we have rather than our own personal opinion, wants, or desires. And that's, that's kind of the fun part of the Christian life, because that's where the Christian has to survey the landscape and, and know their own circle of friends and their own congregation in a broader context to say, how can I clearly, how can I clearly demonstrate the love of Christ and the freedom of Christ? And how can I testify to the fact that Jesus alone rules on the throne and that we want nobody else to get between, between our fellowship? That is the treasure we share, dear friends. That even though we are separated by time and space, even though, um, even though that is the case, that we are yes scattered across the country and we have listeners even on the other side of this globe, at the same time we are united in this Christian faith. We are united by this Jesus who rules in your heart and mine. This Jesus who has promised, dear friends, now let us show affection for one another. Thanks so much for joining us here at the Raised with Jesus podcast. A little bit longer episode today. <laughs> it's, you know, 10 minutes every day where the life of Jesus meets yours, sometimes 20. Um, but be sure to tune in tomorrow. We'll get into 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and the rest of this section. And then go ahead, check out the show notes for that paragraph that I read, as well as the broader um, article 10 of the Formula of Concord. God bless your day. <laughs>